we're going to be talking about digital advertising, but before that, social media, and before that, I think the concept of community, because everything we have today that is available as data comes on the back of the fact that people a few years ago started wanting and accepting the fact that gathering into communities with their own profile, therefore name and surname, an actual identity, was something they were up for. So mm-hmm. communities have always existed, of course. You know, there are people even chatting in a bar about sports. So it's a shared interest, um, gathering around shared interests. I think it's, it's the easiest way to describe it. But then what, what made it, well, of course, then the internet came and, you know, chats. And I don't know if you were in any of those chat rooms or um, yeah, uh, ICQ, C6, yeah, yeah MSN Messenger later on, where normally y- you would be there, but you would be there more as a, uh, a anonymous identity, mm-hmm. uh, for lack of better words. You were basically anonymous back then. And it was really hard actually to understand and, and get a, a feel of who you were talking to because most of the times you thought you were talking to a girl, but then it was a man and vice versa, Uh, it was very awkward. Um, And I have this really interesting story about when I moved from uh, Naples to another city in Italy called Ancona. And um, I actually found, uh, because I was playing football, uh, I found the following team I went to play for, thanks to one of these chats, because I met this girl whose father was uh, uh, a director, uh, manager in, in, in this team. And so just by chance, I did that made the connection. And that's where I probably started. And I was like 14, uh, 14 years old to, to be fascinated by the fact that I, you actually, you could actually start to enhance uh, your community and your, your know, your, the people you would know uh, by engaging with them in the digital world. And then, you know, all those World of Warcraft, all those game, games came, yeah. came into play, which also facilitated the interaction with people on the other side of the world. Again, the shared interest, as you see here. Mm-hmm. And then uh, what's the most relevant for you then is uh, uh, social media coming to play where finally uh, corporations or uh, companies managed to convince people to keep their real identity also in the digital world. Uh, in, in the simplest case for probably Facebook with the excuse of you know, you're going to find your uh, mates from uh, from college. And so having your real name will allow them to find you and vice versa. And so that was the uh, a clever, not necessarily thought through like it was strategic, mm-hmm. but definitely that was the, the end result was that one that it lured a lot of people in, myself included, who were then able to engage and uh, interact with people. They have probably lost connections for a lot of years. And how did your adventure with Facebook start? Yeah, and and I think just to comment on that last part, uh, what's interesting is that the idea of identity and data manifested through Facebook and other social platforms, there's like a very intensely positive spiritual side to it, but there's also a very intensely, uh, potentially more controversial like business side to it, right? It's like if you are on Facebook and it's your real name, then you're able to connect with like your cousin maybe you haven't talked to in years because you found him or her across the world on Facebook or in like a group, which is an awesome thing. Maybe you can even stay in touch with people that you would be able to. I mean, I was talking to my 
my parents and they lived in China in the 80s and I and they tell me about all the friends they had and I was saying well why don't you stay in touch with them and they they said well you know it's it was really hard back then I don't even know yeah. how to find these people now like I these friends of mine like I I wish I could stay in touch with them but for me it's like being a millennial it seems so obvious like obviously you should still stay in touch with people you knew when you were a kid through Facebook and then yeah. the commercial side to that is that uh because of that data and you know this you know part half of the conversations we had at facebook was that you now have the ability to target people based on data around what they like it's like because i know fabrizio is a 18 year old living in rome who loves uh these kind of cars is really interested in football then when we run ads against him that's more effective advertising than anything in in the world till that point to arguably so there was this interesting uh dynamic of Facebook that was kind of appealed to like the human side of things in terms of your ability to connect with people but also there was very much a commercial uh incredible like fire hose of of data that can be used for business purposes so my my journey with Facebook began personally when I started working there in 2013 as just a recent graduate from university and was managing uh clients in the US in New York so I had enough fiction to speak to but I was working with like financial services clients like American Express, Geico yep. and did that for a year then moved to London where I started managing these global partnerships large global clients like Ford, P&G, Volkswagen and that's that's how we met so for 5 years of Facebook I was doing that kind of a mixture of like advisory relationship management working on special projects education and training uh everything from like very strategic stuff how do we work on a big project with ford um for example over the course of a year and also sometimes getting very operational executional about how to to do a, a very good job optimizing specific campaign level things yeah because basically uh for high level spenders you'd have this additional service uh you'd basically be able to uh tap into additional resources that were provided by Facebook were either on a creative side to understand a bit better or of course you do a really great you used to do um, when you were at Facebook a really great job in um uh updating of course the creative teams on yeah. uh, what what the best way of uh engaging the audience would be and all the latest trends and all that stuff so everything of course was the ultimate goal of you know getting ultimately the the brand to spend more and actually the country sorry to be more effective and therefore to be convinced to 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 spend more mm-hmm. um it actually all started in in 2007 i can remember i just kind of remember now that when you mentioned you could you actually get in touch with people from all across the world yeah. i i had i made the first person i added after the closest friends on facebook was uh, a guy named robert maschio Uh-huh. which used to be the Todd in the TV series Scrubs. Really? Yeah. And, and you and found actually, him on Facebook. You just like I looked just, up because I looked up for him. I asked him his friendship. He accepted. I wrote to him. He wrote back because it since it was a new thing. Uh celebrities, oh, he's not a big celebrity, but anyway, uh they would still be keen, you know, and uh, understanding the channel and therefore a bit more uh um precious as less precious with their time and therefore a bit more open to 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 talk with people and actually I got in touch with him again a few months ago and he never replied on Instagram 
uh, which gives you the idea of how things change and how people uh, get get used yeah. to uh, the platform. Then, well, um, and, 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 and so, the, and sorry, on that point too, what's interesting is I, I heard someone say the other day. Um, I think it's actually Sam Parr from the Hustle, you know, like the um, newsletter news company, that he thinks that at some point in the future, uh, it's interesting if you think about the concept of like privacy and data, right? Like now, technically, you know, if you have open DMs on Twitter, I could just reach out to you, even if I don't know you. If I find <laughs> out your email, I can send you a cold email. Uh, if mm -hmm. if like what you did, you can friend someone on Facebook. You can Instagram DM someone. I wonder in the future, like this is access that's kind of unprecedented when it comes to what you're able to do. Like technically, if someone has open DMs, you could you could DM The Rock. You know, you could you could DM like some of the famous people in the world, and sometimes they do reply. And mm -hmm. I wonder in the future if that will be a situation where access will be more limited, where you can't just DM someone when whatever the version of social media is in 10, 20 years from now. Yeah, it probably will be annoying as people ringing at your bell, at your yeah. doorbell. Yeah, 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 yeah. It'll, it'll get to that point. Uh, think of LinkedIn. That's constantly that. People exactly. with the presumption that they are they can sell you something you're interested in in that moment, and it's completely out of context. Uh, most of the times it's uh, completely, um, cold, as, you, as you mentioned, cold emails yeah. and normally without even you know without even connecting some, with someone with the with the right role so in most cases even automated email, yeah, which are yeah. even more annoying um and so yeah that that's something part of uh i think the netiquette of the digital yeah. world which a um, more digitalized people understand and get which is the reason why i don't really write to everyone yeah um but then on the other side yeah, it's it's something that's going to change with the uh, with the culture, I think, yeah. and uh, it's going to become, as you mentioned, the norm. Therefore, uh, has to be regulated yeah. one way or the other. Speaking of regulations, uh, oh, actually, sorry, going back to the steps about data collection. Mm -hmm. So one of the first incentivations, of course, was okay. You you keep your your real name, therefore you find your friends or or a parents, and then the other. I think big added value became the fact that I was they were giving you finally a platform where to express yourself, yeah. which blogs have been around for a while, uh, but they weren't that immediate. I remember uh, I used to work for a startup uh, at, the early, at the beginning of my career, I think it was 2010, uh, 2009, and we were, uh, it, it, was a, it was a community of writers that used to write articles. Really? Specifically, it was a content factory that was specifically aimed at creating content based on Google research, oh. uh, search queries. Therefore, if you knew that people were looking for a specific, I don't know, uh, keyword on a specific yes, day, yeah. so I don't know, so you would create content around that specific keyword so that you would have more traffic coming in and you would sell through the ads around the article. Uh, and uh, create marginality and margins like that. Mm -hmm. So it was an interesting model, but it didn't really work when uh, Google introduced Panda and yeah. some other algorithms that were against these kind of uh, strategies. Um, and so we had to sh shift completely the platform and said, you know, we have this community of writers, what shall we do? Oh, maybe we should convert them into bloggers. Mm -hmm. And so have them run their own blog rather than writing for us because we, we were a, a news channel. And when we did that, 
uh, one I remember this very clearly. One of the first things we were develop, we were discussing with the dev team, uh, which were based in France uh, back then, uh, was you know what kind of killer features we can give to the platform that diversifies it from WordPress or Tumblr or anything else. And we were like, well, nowadays everything is about real time, so maybe we should give them possibility to post content real time. And the first idea was that I had was live videos. Mm. But back then, in 2010, the only live streaming platforms were very expensive because, of course, that requires a lot of bandwidth. It's not easy, and, and the internet connection was, wasn't that great in early 2010. So it wasn't the right moment for that kind of feature. And in fact, it got um, it, it didn't get approved as a, as a proposal uh, when I brought it forward. But then you fast forward maybe not even two, three years, and Arab Spring comes yeah. in, where through Facebook and Twitter, basically whole revolutions get started. Uh, and so it becomes a, a, not only a platform for expression, but also a platform for information. And uh, in, in, in regimes and in, in countries where information was very, very much uh, polarized. Yeah. And there, I think we get into the next subject, which I think is a, an interesting one to deepen, which is you know, all the Cambridge Analytica Uh, scenario and the information bubbles that through social media get created because of course just to explain it very very easily to people listening uh, when you are browsing uh, Facebook or any other social media in general you're browsing a, a timeline which is not uh, let's say chronological but based on what the platform and the algorithm thinks it might be more relevant for you yeah. And so if you start liking content that's specifically around, I don't know, a specific football team or a religion or uh, a political party, then you start getting more and more content that is, uh, that the platform thinks is relevant to you, that is more um, prone towards the, uh, th those views. And therefore you start creating, that's why it's called polarization, because it's dragging you more and more say if you're a leftist looking for a leftist content is, is getting you more and more in, on that side and uh, you're not getting the other point of view um, which is if you add to that the fact that you can now buy advertising and force advertising to people with specific views uh, to confirm their bias uh, in order to eventually uh, affect uh, an election Uh, that becomes, of course, scary. And again, this is nothing new. This is propaganda that's always happened everywhere in any channel before the era of internet. Of course, with the era of internet, this uh, this tool becomes very, very powerful. How did you live it on on your point of view? Yeah, no, I think it's definitely a concern, not just for Facebook, but for anybody on the internet now. You think about the most extreme versions of how misinformation can cause violence or cause harm it's like are you familiar with you know like the conspiracies like QAnon um like yeah. things like that are basically conspiracies that are born out of the internet that turn into in some ways kind of like cults or movements where people literally want to commit violence because of like internet ideas and memes that were spread so <clears throat> I was in an interesting situation when I worked at Facebook because I left the company before the Cambridge Analytica stuff happened uh mm -hmm. and Uh, to me, it's interesting because when I left uh, a few months later, when Cambridge Analytica happened, all of my friends and colleagues I used to work with 
told me about how how stressful it was, how crazy of a time it was, and how important that was as kind of like a turning point in terms of understanding Facebook is not just always good, always great, always good for the world. Because when I was at Facebook from 2013 to 2018, I think that was quite an idealistic time. You know, I remember 2014, 2015, Facebook's like PR was still pretty good. People thought, you know, Facebook is connecting the world, making the world more open and connected was our uh, slogan. I um, yeah, I remember when I was um, like at Facebook, that slogan was something that everybody really believed in. When I first got to Facebook in 2013, uh, the idea of making the world more open and connected, of, of stories of like some like young woman in the middle of India who's now used Facebook to connect with family around the world and she's created her own like e-commerce brand. That's truly what I believed and thought Facebook represented, this like overwhelmingly positive good for the world. And I still believe that, but as time went on, 2017, 2018, it seemed like the world and Facebook itself as a company started opening itself up to the ideas of really the downsides of social media and filter bubbles. And mm -hmm. since then, you know, especially since 2018, you've seen tons of former Facebook executives like Chamath, Pali Apatia, Sean Parker, uh, I think Roger McNamee. Like these are all people who were very influential figures um, at Facebook in the early years who are now saying that, yo, there's a lot of downsides to social media that we kind of naively took for granted back in like 2008 when it seemed like we were just building some social platform to connect kids and college kids around the world. Now, yeah. fast forward to today and the idea of filter bubbles and echo chambers, it's I think it's more and more concerning as each day goes by. And it's it's not just a Facebook thing. It's like if you're on Twitter. No, no, yeah. no. If I'm a, if I'm on YouTube and I'm watching a Joe Rogan, a Rogan episode, then the next couple of things I get served is be exactly. sure uh, Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro. Yep. Like it's 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 one hundred percent. Even though Jordan Peterson might not be the most conservative yeah. person in the world, even though it's been associated a lot mm -hmm. with him. Uh, and then on the other side, uh, on Facebook, the, the reason, and that gives you an idea also of my political yeah. views. I've actually been served at the moment. I well during the elections mainly uh, anti-Trump. Mm. Um, let's say occupy democrats kind of content so very very leftist leftist and then again ben shapiro content which of course is more uh, of a conservative kind of uh, republican kind of content and so because i get served both i actually get to see both worlds and realize that both are an exaggeration of reality and an overstretching of truth uh, that sometimes becomes even annoying with some of an objective eye who doesn't have interest in uh, US yeah. politics like in my case like I I have no interest in one way or the other I just I can look at it with a really um, agnostic eye I can, I can tell you both visions that are offered on social media at the moment are very extreme and of course if I'm in one bubble or the other I'm sure I'm gonna be dragged on the other side uh, and towards the first end so they start to almost look this is more yeah. political, of course, rather than uh, and social, rather than uh, than digital. But of course, uh, the two polarized versions almost seem to look very much one like the other. Uh, there's no much difference between the two extremes yeah. uh, nowadays. And I, I think people are pretty aware of that, right? Actually, as I say that out loud, maybe maybe people aren't aware. Like you know, you and I sit in a world where 
we're pretty up to date with technology. We understand even at a high level how algorithms work when it comes to news. But I wonder the vast majority of people who maybe don't even care about that level of detail when they see ads, when they see news that's promoting a radical point of view, they just take that as, as face value. I don't think they do. I don't think they do. And that's one of our, I think, with uh, with our children and, and future generations, our main goal will have to be uh, teach them critical uh, analysis and be able to discern uh, what is being told versus what could be reality. So do their own yeah. research and find sources that are uh, reliable. It's, um, it's interesting you mentioned children because it's one of these things where people should probably teach this in schools. You know, like when I was a kid, obviously we didn't have any sort of lessons on, I remember, we, I think we had like IT class, like learning how to use Microsoft mm-hmm. Word and Paint or something. But now there's a need for education around information, right? Like if I was a 10 year old kid right now, it's probably very important mm-hmm. for me to understand how to navigate the internet, how to navigate apps, both from like a safety and privacy perspective, but also from like a critical thinking perspective. Maybe I should realize, exactly. you know, yeah think a bit deeper uh, about what I'm seeing. And I think people are trying to do that. I think I saw on Twitter that you, know, you have captions or disclaimers under things saying if something's disputed, I think they have on Instagram, Facebook as well. They have, um, they, they have like little disclaimers or captions explaining some level of bias or origination. It's not perfect, but mm-hmm. I, I believe at a macro level, yeah. we're moving more towards having a positively sophisticated understanding of how media information communication is distributed around the world the problem with that that uh, that process of uh, trying to verify content is that of course it has given the huge amount of content we're talking about so we're talking about yeah. all social media from all of people around the world it has to be automated and the moment it gets automated of course it, it becomes a reflection of whoever programs it and, and the um, thing with that too is that i um and I, I don't know if you saw when i believe it was like sundar pachai tim cook and uh, some other people who came in front of congress to like talk about like mm-hmm. antitrust violations um Google, jeff bezos was there yes. yeah and i remember at one point this is something something I hear a lot from like particularly in the US like Republican congressmen and senators saying like I I believe that I've been the target of censorship by Facebook or Twitter or or, or YouTube where people uh, ha- are having trouble seeing uh, my my content my emails aren't going out and and it's and and usually these Republicans are saying it's because of bias from like sort of more left-leaning engineers or product people at these companies and usually you know the response from Sundar Pichai or whatever is always like you know we're very objective we don't want this to happen but the reality is and I know this firsthand Facebook uh, Google the Silicon Valley companies are super liberal and I'm not saying that's a right or wrong thing but to to presume um, objectivity is really hard and it's just like a human failing as well. Yes. You know, Sundar Pichai, I'm sure he's a very smart guy, of course, and he wants to be objective. But when you have like 50,000 employees and he can't control what every single one of them are doing, and it's such a big company, there's so many, there's so much complexity to Google. And you have, I don't know, maybe 80% of the employees who are sometimes not even just maybe liberal, but vir- 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 virulently anti-right in, in many ways. You can't help but have biases, and it's it's. There's no easy fix for that, but having worked at a Silicon Valley company, I just know that 
the sort of PR statement of objectivity is just really far removed from the reality. Exactly. It's a tough one. It's a tough challenge to, to actually fix. So going back to what we could do on our side, it's definitely education. Like we used to have classes uh, where we used to read newspapers and see the difference between oh, really? left and right newspapers. That was That's actually, great. yeah, that was an interesting one because they would actually teach you that, you know, information can come with different words and it will be the same information, but just told differently. Um, and that kind of approach, I think, is the right one for, for definitely younger generations. Uh, speaking of which, I think you mentioned earlier the fact that, you know, you're a bit, you, you don't know if, you know, people around the world are actually able to discern, you know, taking the younger generations apart, take a 45, 50 year old uh, average Joe that's uh, um, browsing through social media. He has no clue. Like he has no clue what a meme is. He has no clue what uh, uh, sarcasm is. Uh, he has no clue of how the digital world has worked so far. Therefore, you don't have to take things too seriously. Um, I'm, I've got a video on TikTok that I believe now is at thirty-five thousand yeah. views, which is more than I ever got from any social media nice. in my entire life. And uh, it's 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 the silliest video of my child basically uh, uh, um, cleaning the house and then there's these uh, you know the meme with the girls screaming yeah. when they, <laughs> they because, um, because they get to know I think that they're they passed for college or something like that and so there, there's like the since this this video has been uh, probably in uh, in people's news feeds automatically shared as possibly interesting uh, mm -hmm. in Italy there's so many Italian comments of people who are literally because you can see that by the yeah. the username they have they just literally dropped yeah. into the platform uh, and they have no clue how it works they have no clue that it's it's a fun video and they're like oh I don't understand that they're exploiting the kid or they're, they're, like it's it's once you read through comments you understand what the average uh, well, you can also see the results of the election in general, but uh, you, you can understand the average uh, people's understanding of digital channels through the fact that you, if you read the comments, you understand what, what they really get from things. And uh, unfortunately, they don't really, it, it's, it's completely different culture. They, they, they can't get it. So there's this huge dichotomy between uh, older generate well, we that we get it and understand, and sometimes even ourselves take it too seriously. I, I, uh, which I think is the the key to social media is that one. Don't take them too seriously. Yeah. I think that's the key to solving everybody's well, that, problems. Well, that's that um, a generational point that I think will be exacerbated, right? Because one of the, in my opinion, positive things about technology now is the fact that technology is going to allow us to live longer. Now, it's not like everybody's going to live to 100 tomorrow, but if you think about the average lifespan of, let's say, your grandmother, great-grandmother right now, um, and you think about how quickly technology is moving, I think the cultural gap between someone who's 18 and 90 is so much wider now than it would have been between an 18 and 90-year-old in 1950. And uh, mm. if you think about the speed at which culture moves when it comes to communication, you know, like the 18-year-olds on TikTok maybe posting posting memes is, has all these inside jokes that person like their form of communication is alien compared to what a 90 year old would be able to understand about humor about communication and things and 
And it's 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 interesting to me how this gap needs to be bridged somehow. Or maybe maybe there's also like commercial opportunity there. Maybe because you know like baby boomers are aging, and this is I think the biggest demographic in the developed world over the next 20 years. Like baby boomers, what if you had more products or a social network that's just for baby boomers, right? If my parents had their own Facebook for people in their age group, maybe that's some a way that、um, technology can make them feel more connected to each other because the speed at which Communications evolving and social media is changing is just so rapid that I think there needs to be more of an effort to bridge generations now than there there was a need for that, let's say, fifty years ago. Yeah, it's an interesting key because maybe taking some generations out of specific channels、yeah. is probably the right solution. I'm thinking even even TikTok and the younger generations actually、yeah. that's very dangerous.、Uh, I I can't.、Uh, I can't even think of how many times I've been served with basically、uh, girls in bikinis、yeah. that are fifteen-year-old,、yeah. and just by the presumption that because I'm a man and I'm in this age age、uh, group, I'm probably going to be interested in that that type of content. Of course, I'm talking about the feed. That's the one that they suggest to you, not the、yeah. one that's based on your on your following. And so I'm I'm like. That that's dangerous too. And、uh, myself, we're talking about ninety-year-olds, but I'm talking about myself. I'm thirty-four, and I struggle to understand sort certain aspects of the culture that's coming out of TikTok at the moment. So,、um, and again, I know I have to accept it in the same way probably my father accepted me when I was expressing myself on Facebook and YouTube maybe a few years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago. But it's there's going to be another one in a couple of months. Like it's it's gonna keep changing. Like the the other thing people don't understand, and they get hyper excited about a new platform, and then you're gonna see a, a year later there's there's、yeah. already another one, and it starts becoming a very cluttered environment, and um, it's、uh, it's very chaotic. It's hard to keep 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 track of everything. It's gonna get worse and worse in terms of、uh, number of platforms available, and so probably what you're suggesting is the right key、uh, to so not solving the、yeah. issue, but for sure. Putting a bit of order there, which is you know making sure that each platform has a scope and each. each... It, it's it kind of gets to a broader point of I don't know if the right term is decentralization because you think about social media or digital media as just media, right? Now you think about how in the 1980s, at least in places like the U.S., you had like three main TV stations, right? And that's about it. And then in the early 2000s, you had hundreds, if not thousands, of cable channels. And then, let's say five, ten years ago, there were like five or ten main online publications. They still made publications now, like the New York Times or the Guardian, whatever. But now, through this whole sort of world of the creator economy and new media, you have like a million different bloggers and newsletters and people who are tweeting who you can follow based on your particular niche. Like you might be really into cats. Um, a certain type of yeah, skateboarding, skateboarding, yeah, skateboarding, skateboarding cats. cats, and there's a handful of people in the world who just create YouTube videos about skateboarding cats and have newsletters about skateboarding cats, and that community might be pretty big. Maybe those newsletters have five million people, but to me, not necessarily into that.、Mm -hmm. I might not even know that exists, but there's like hundreds, thousands, or maybe theoretically an endless number of these niches that. Are now able to communicate with each other and become fully formed communities because of the internet. It's like I think there's a stat where 
uh, 20 years ago, the number of YouTubers who had uh, more than like 10 million subscribers was like, I don't know, like 500. But now the number of YouTubers who have more than 10 million subscribers is like 5,000. So if you think about that conceptually, the biggest YouTube videos in the world, we all kind of probably knew in 2010. It's like, oh, Gangnam Style or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, that's cool. Now there's videos yeah. that might Exactly. Be one now, now there could be a video that blows your mind at how crazy or different it feels to what you're interested in, but it might have like 30 million views and it might be this niche that you're not even aware of. I mean, two two big ones that I think I feel kind of aware of, but I, I take for granted that most people don't is, you know, mukbang and ASMR. You know, like mukbang is when mm -hmm. people just take videos of themselves eating. And that's like one of the biggest categories of, of YouTube videos where you have people just doing video recordings, particularly in Asia, videos of themselves like eating food mm -hmm. and that has like for like 30 minutes and that has like 20 million views. And ASMR is people just, you know, record yeah. uh, audio and video of them doing things that have like an like an orally appealing, actually like an auditory appealing uh, sound, like someone whispering into a microphone or someone like shuffling something. And that's like a whole category of YouTube video. Yeah, like uh, yeah. Johnson's yeah. voice. Yeah, or like crunching up paper. And, and these are, the thing is, these things, to me, because I, I think I'm familiar with this kind of subculture, I know like, yeah, these are huge communities. They're like millions and millions of people. But I remember I was talking to a group of friends uh, maybe two months ago, and one of the friends shared like an ASMR video with the rest of the group. And half of the group was like, oh, ASMR, classic, ha ha ha. Like my daughter loves ASMR. And the other half of the group was like, what is ASMR? I've never heard of this before in my entire life. Crazy. The other point um, that we we slightly touched upon, which I think we should probably deepen, is the concept of digital advertising. So the transition has been from traditional advertising, one to many, to what through digital advertising has become one to one basically communication so every 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 single ad could be targeted to a specific person in the world if they if they wanted and i remember a few creatives that popped around in the time we we uh we met each other uh, about ads that you know had hundreds of different iterations for hundreds of different clusters of people niches as you, as you mentioned so if you're selling a car and you're selling and you want to sell it to people who watch videos of cats skateboarding you'd have a cat skateboarding on top of the car but then if you're serving it to people that like you know the 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 the, the videos where you're eating in front of the camera then then you'd have people eating in the car and and, and that that would be an infinite masturbation of brands trying to reach as many people as possible and ultimately trying to be as relevant as possible for those specific people because i think the keyword here uh for digital yeah. advertising is relevance so as long as you're relevant you can be very very finely targeted uh and very very effective in your communication um that itself has been a huge disruption in the way advertising was done so basically now you, you have billboards uh that instead of being seen by hundreds of thousands of people just walking in front of it in the best case scenario, now you can target specifically with one specific billboard uh, people around the world uh, one by one. And so that's, that's, that's huge. That's, that's amazing for brands. That's an amazing tool. 
it is confusing and it's, it's basically forced brands to transform themselves into yeah. content creators and uh, that's that's the biggest uh, change I've seen and uh, the brands who more successfully have done it in the past 10 years 15 years uh, mm -hmm. think of Red Bull think of uh, GoPro of course GoPro is uh, it's an easier job for them uh, being being itself uh, um, out of a technology yeah. that creates content uh, but for Red Bull, you know, building a brand on the back of the fact that they were basically sponsoring the extreme sports and on the back of that, you'd have a huge amount of very varied content spanning from people jumping, jumping off of a cliff uh, and then uh, people skydiving and people snowboarding and people skating and so on. So uh, it's been an amazing adventure on that perspective in terms of content creation and entertainment. And uh, if you see social media and the entertainment side of things, they've definitely boosted the quality of what's being done and uh, raised the bar in this in this perspective of creating content that's relevant for those niches that you mentioned. I, I think if you are, because you think about the the value chain, right? And this is something you're you're very familiar with, considering you know the work you see together. You have, let's say, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna think about a like a three-step funnel going from top down top is brand second yeah. is the agency advertising agency like who creates the creative and then the third is the actual consumer so if it was 1950 and we were living in a major city like the brand might be let's say head and shoulders png creates shampoo that pretty much should be for everyone like head and shoulders isn't for 18 year old skateboarding kids it's kind of for everyone like it's something that had mass appeal so then the creative created by the advertising agency in 1950 would just be something fairly straightforward. It's like, oh, head and shoulders makes your hair cleaner and smoother. And then the audience, since there was no way to get specific audience, maybe that'd be like a TV ad sent to 20 million households. And, and yeah, maybe maybe based on location. Exactly. Exactly. Now, uh, what's it? <laughs> And you wouldn't have actual actual it's views. Creating... You'd have yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. opportunities to see. Um, yeah, maybe yeah. this amount of people might have and, seen. And it, it would be on like uh, one of a made a major TV channel where it's like I don't know whatever the sitcom was in 1950. It's not like a, a niche topic. It's like some sort of middle of the road mainstream comedy because they wanted to appeal to as many people as possible. Now you might have in yeah. seven, seventy years later. It seems like a long time. You might have a T2C brand, right? Where it's like, instead of P&G, it's like Fabrizio has created Fabrizio's shampoo. And that's specifically for Italian men between the ages of 30 or 40 who are really into skateboarding and really into cats and have a specific type of hair that's very long and curly. And maybe you don't even need an agency to help you think of a creative, but you have, I don't know, your own sort of uh, 20 variations of uh, people like Fabrizio, the target audience, who are skateboarding, who have curly hair, who have cats, and then you maybe run a few Facebook ads. That's like one one thousandth, or even smaller, in terms of like the market size of the PNG Head and Shoulders in 1950. But in some ways, it's a higher margin business for you right now because you have more relevant targeted content and product for a more relevant audience, and you times that by a million. You know, I could have a shampoo brand that I just create for, for, for young men in New Zealand who are really into skateboarding as well. And this sort of dispersion of mm -hmm. brand is also reflected in the dispersion of media. And 
that that's like a, a major mm-hmm. change where uh, if if you're a big brand like like a PNG, what what's your strategy in the situation? Do you and and, and actually we've seen it's, it play out like PNG Unilever they've tried acquiring a lot of these small brands. You know Unilever. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Or or builds or yeah, spin-offs smaller. Yeah, they're, they're, they're building specific. like a bunch of mini brands and, and even like like beer brands like you know Budweiser, they. Uh, have acquired many craft breweries, craft beers over the last like 10, 20 years, where they don't they don't explicitly say owned by Budweiser. But if you look at, particularly in the U.S., like a lot of craft beers that are semi-popular but still kind of niche and cool, a lot of them are actually owned by Budweiser, right? So you have this um, dichotomy where you could be an upstart brand, maybe focuses just on like some D to C single SKU like just one or two types of shampoo for men. Uh, and then you have these big brands who, like house of brands, like Unilever P&G, who need to figure out, okay, well, do we try to, to, to spin up new brands? Should we try to acquire that single SKU brand? And it, it's going to just continue to sort of manifest with that dichotomy. I don't know what the end game is. Like, I think P&G and Unilever aren't going away tomorrow, but they have more of an existential crisis now, I think, than than the single SKU D2C brand. Yeah, it's harder to be a big brand in, uh, in this case, uh, even though they have big budgets, uh, but they're used to spending them the wrong way. So yeah. at least things are changing now. But when I started in the in the in the industry, it was really hard to get them used to spending the way money wisely and letting them understand that there was a, there were ways to, of converting more. So maybe splitting the content creation side into, you know, 10 different variations would have them single variation perform better as a whole rather than the single big shot uh, advertising campaign. And so that changed completely and dramatically the way it's also it it goes to like literally not just the brands, uh, the structural change, but also the agency change. And you know this better than I would, but, you know, creative agencies in the 60s and 70s, you know, like sort of an admin era, or even not not that far away, but in the last 10, 20 years, it was kind of, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, but it was like the executive creative director had like one big idea that was manifested through a 30 second, 60 second TV spot, and everything was built towards this big idea. And it was less about iteration. It was less about a bunch of small ideas to test and learn. It was like, I've got this idea and I have this intuition as the big creative guy. And that mm-hmm. is the way we're going to work. And yeah, sometimes not even based on insights. So you, you wouldn't have necessarily planners or strategists on the back to build a campaign. Yeah. It will be just a big idea, one asset, uh, and then as cinematic as possible because of their mindset. And actually that was the case. So even, I don't know if things have changed in the past five years because I am not in an agency world, but even four or five years ago, it's, uh, it was still a big, a big issue. You would find yourself with people delivering assets that you'd have to somehow promote and push where most of the effort and the, not only in terms of money, but also in terms of strategy and vision was, uh, pointed towards one single asset, as you said, the minute long video, very cinematic, uh, but then that could work only on TV and not necessarily on social channels because of the different dynamics content on social channel works. And I think we can touch on this one too, because that's something you've 
brainwashed myself uh, for so many years. You know, the attention grabbing, uh, which which ultimately means still relevant. Uh, with the first three seconds enticing and then making sure that the works with audio off and all of these small tricks that actually become the norm about a few years ago were really yeah. hard to get well, into people's I, I think, minds. You know, these changes take time psychologically more than anything else, right? It's if you if you think about it in a world prior to digital advertising, when it was harder to measure <clears throat> the efficacy of a TV ad, or at the very least it was less data driven than it is now then the incentives you have are much more emotional incentives it's like and you you know this all as I do where it just had to exactly. be beautiful and people in the it's company like, had the to like the CMO like it. That was or the CEO smile when he or she sees the ad on the TV show and and their families exactly. probably because they're going to watch it depending on how much and then the press picks it up and it's like this is such a cool ad and then suddenly that person <clears throat> that ECD the executive creative director has suddenly won a can award as a result now that's an incentive structure yeah. that doesn't go away overnight and it's and it's it's an incentive structure that doesn't necessarily reward efficacy of product uh sales for example um but in a world now where you think about a new type of digitally native marketer let's take for example uh e-commerce companies or mobile app companies like we used to at Facebook always consider our most <clears throat> savvy advertisers were the super data driven people driving uh, a certain cost of acquisition certain average order value for e-commerce or mobile app and that is something that is a completely different way of you create like incentives Absolutely. for like downloading mobile apps or selling e-commerce retargeting very strategic uh, very low low level in terms of uh, creative and uh, expense content but very very exactly effective. and <clears throat> part of that too is because if you've created like the clash of clans or <clears throat> some mobile app game it's not necessarily you can't rely on years of brand equity right but gm or ford <clears throat> a big part of their selling point is the fact that they've built brand equity over the last 100 years so if you think about it like if if you and i i mean think about an example literally in automotive like tesla You know, that's a brand that didn't exist 30 years ago. So they've had to be more savvy with marketing in some ways just off the back of Elon Musk's personality because if you're going to compete in a category mm-hmm. where you have established players who've been around for 100 years, let's say beer, makeup, etc., you need to do something radical in order to um fight against a big brand like L'Oreal or Budweiser. <clears throat> that's true. What I'm thinking of is um which maybe leads us to the final part of the conversation. How do you see content evolving on a on an advertiser's perspective? So in channels like TikTok now because I see uh you know what 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 is you know, well, interesting there. I think TikTok's interesting because it's just well for many reasons. Um let me pick uh three first would be algorithmic um sorting the second would be authenticity and the third would be participation so the first one it's the whole topic that we discussed about you getting into a filter bubble or being able to watch youtube videos in a particular niche that did exist 10 years ago or seems so much more niche than what was possible 10 years ago 
that's like what TikTok has taken to the next level. I remember when I used to work at Facebook and probably pitching like ideas to you, we used to say things that everybody's Facebook feed is different. Like Fabrizio, if I look at yours, I know that you have different things, your friends and your family and your interests. But for mm -hmm. me, it's my friends, my family, my interests. Now, I think TikTok has literally put that on steroids where if you go on TikTok and you love skateboarding and cats and I love uh, very specific types of content related to, I don't know, like 1980s Italian football, uh, the algorithm at a much more quick, dynamic and intense way will very quickly start being like, okay, let's just serve Anthony tons and tons of Italian 80s football clips and you will start receiving skateboarding cat clips. So it's sorted people into their own hyper niches in a way that's even more specific than it was on Facebook and Twitter. And because of that, if I, more quickly, mm -hmm. um, more if quickly. I'm a football brand and I'm trying to reach me and TikTok knows that I'm super intense in terms of 80s Italian football, then I should theoretically be in a more high intent mindset uh, or like a high passion entertainment mindset when I get served with an ad. And I think TikTok have actually done studies, like don't quote me on this, but because TikTok is primarily an entertainment vehicle, right? Like I'm not on there to communicate with friends per se. Then the, the mindset I have of like, mm -hmm. let's say I receive an ad from like a football, football brand or selling football t-shirts, um, it puts me in a different frame of mind versus when I'm on other platforms. And that frame of mind so it's, yeah, it's very similar to, I don't know, uh, Snapchat in terms of configuration of the platform and layout, but actually it's completely different because of the reason you just said. So one is pure entertainment. Uh, I want to be entertained. And exactly. the other one and, is and that, that's a very different frame of mind, right? Like if I'm served an ad, when I'm just trying to, like you're sitting between me and messaging my friend Fabrizio, or I'm posting on Fabrizio's wall and I'm, I'm getting an ad, that affects me in a different way than if I'm mm -hmm. bored and I'm sitting around, I'm scrolling through funny videos and memes and suddenly I see an ad. So this, and, 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 and to think about it, like yeah. I'm in a more intense mindset if I'm seeing things that I absolutely love, 80s Italian football. Now, the second thing has to do with authenticity. And, and this is something I've talked about a lot. I think I put this in like my TikTok course, talk about this many interviews is that, you know, you know me when I was working at Facebook and Instagram and my life every single day was you know, trying to convince you to do more with Facebook and Instagram. And uh, Instagram in particular is something that I think is very close to my generation. But I think I come from the Instagram generation and I remember Instagram started taking off when I was at university, I believe. And then it's been a big part of my life for the last eight years. But there's a sort of Instagram aesthetic and an Instagram mindset about, okay, well, you got to be either like a hipster with a big beard in Brooklyn who's taking photos, or you got to have like abs and be like a model like in Dubai mm -hmm. on the beach. And if you're, and I'm, exa I'm obviously exaggerating, but generally mm -hmm. speaking, Instagram was this high end uh, aesthetic where you need to put effort into this and you need to have the most perfect photos. And that was something that was really cool. Obviously millions, actually billions of people around the world love Instagram, but it's part of a cultural mm -hmm. shift that makes that less relevant now than it was five years ago. And I think people are fatigued with the sort of yeah. Instagram polished aesthetic and TikTok is, is kind of rising up in opposition to that because while of course you have very high quality videos, high quality content on TikTok, generally speaking compared to Instagram, you have people who are just like making funny videos in their bathroom uh, without any sort of polish behind it. Like, um, 
pajamas. Yeah, I, I, I use the example Pink about pajamas. if you, if you yeah, compare yeah. someone like like even an actress like Jessica Alba. If you go on her Instagram, it's like the super polished. Um, looks like each post has so much effort put into it. Then you go on her TikTok and you see her like in pajamas with her daughter doing a silly TikTok dance. And then, you know, she like goes to the camera mm. to turn it on, turns it off. And it's like, there's no, the, the, the aspect ratio is not perfect. Like, you know, half of her body is like out of the picture. And I think people want that now. People want authenticity. You know, people talk about the word authenticity when it comes to content and media, like a buzzword. But the reality behind it is not taking yourself too seriously. You know, I think you mentioned that earlier about like the sort of young mindset aesthetic. And and I think TikTok is this fascinating platform where you, you could think about it as celebrating raw, unpolished, authentic content in a, in a way that really Instagram can't compete with. And of course, they could try to change the aesthetic. They could have reels. Uh, but I think TikTok has kind of got a at least a, a, a beachhead on that consumer behavior and how they're taking advantage of that. Um, I agree with you. That's that, that's surely the case. I'm just wondering whether that's uh, in the DNA of the company as an objective, or it's just coming by chance because yeah. it's that's a really early adopters. Well, for 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 how you can call them early adopters who at the beginning are just going crazy, like um, Robert Maschio accepting my friendship uh, in 2007. But maybe then yeah. the channel gets uh, a bit more polished uh, with time, which um, ultimately I think is also might be might be the case. Given that you know some you know, think of the TikToks and the fact that so many people are incentivized to do these uh, weird dances with the hands, etc., and the fact that you can slow them down, you can speed them up, you can dub things, and so. It is authentic, but never 100%. Like I've seen my, uh, not my niece, but my wife's niece uh, yeah. spent hours uh, rehearsing things. Uh, and and, and, um, and myself, I've done a couple where uh, I, I, honestly, I can do things unless I slow them down, yeah. even when I'm dubbing uh, a song. And so uh, it, it, it comes out authentic, yeah. but it isn't. Oh, and sure. also let's not forget <clears throat> filters also. I uh, I, I think speaking of filter, filter, sorry, the thing that comes into my mind, if, if you if you merge uh, these three trends, let's talk uh, filters, esports, so a lot of people watching uh, people playing in a digital world and then uh, all the features of social media and, and we can take the coolest ones from TikTok for instance, uh, you know, content getting richer and richer and richer with AR and VR and so on. It sounds like the next step of social media might dive into uh, the world of video games or it's say 3D avatars or something like that. Maybe not in you know, so far future. Uh, but again, this is just speculation based yeah, on I think, what I'm I think speculation is based on data, right? Not. You just look at how, like, like let's take younger audiences right teenagers or younger like the the platform that teenagers and young people spend the most time on is roblox fortnite uh video games takes more time in a person's day than time spent on social media particularly if you're younger and i think there's like a i think going, thinking about cultural yeah. generational disconnects like if i told my grandmother 
like if I tried to explain what a video game was to my grandmother and explain Roblox to her, she wouldn't be able to comprehend that because she probably thinks about video games as I don't know Super mm -hmm. Mario, right? A very like solitary, yeah, like a, a solitary yeah. experience Bunk. that is static and you load up like a cartridge into a console. But now, if you're playing on, exactly, you're you're basically entering like, a virtual social world where your character is whatever you want it to be. And, and I mean, World exactly. of Warcraft was this, you know, just a few years ago as well. But now it's just even more accessible, where if you're on Fortnite, you're not just going on Fortnite because you want to play a game and win. You're going there for social reasons. It's like to hang out with your buddies or playing Call of Duty. It's Of course, it matters, you know, who's winning the game. But the social aspect is maybe even more important than the competitive aspect. And if you think about actually, let's say, influencers in the video game space, uh, I think to mm -hmm. this point about social matter mattering more than the actual competitive aspect, you know, the most famous streamers in the world aren't necessarily the best players, right? Like PewDiePie, uh, Ninja, they're not winning competitions for Fortnite, exactly. And, and like Minecraft, things like that. Yeah. So if you think about it, like video games is now for younger generations, not necessarily like... Uh, completely like a, a sport. I mean, of course, there's like an esport aspect to it, but it's a way for people to socialize. And particularly now when we're all... Exactly. It's, it's exactly what social media were for us 15, 20 years ago. Like it's, it's to them, it means the same thing. It's a self-expression, it's socialization, it's uh, shared interests and things you can talk about when you go back to school. So uh, honestly, it's, uh, it's there. And maybe we're not getting it in the yeah. same way uh, exactly. Our parents didn't get us when we, especially when we in were a world them. where we're all kind of locked down, right? So if you're 14 right now and you can't go to school because yeah. of lockdown, or at least you have to, you know, socially distance or whatever, uh, what's the best way to stay in touch with your buddies? It's probably through video. Games. Look, the first thing I did after lockdown in the first month, and we were the first to do it. Uh, was to force two of my best friends nice. uh, to download NBA Live 2020 and and Call of Duty so that we could play online, the three of us, well, and how was while, it? How while talking to each other. Right? Uh, it was amazing. Like It was a video call between us, so talking about stupid things, having fun. In the meantime, also playing. So it was like uh, <laughs> the ultimate uh, yeah. man that, cave. Well, and this is... This is you know, a beautiful note, right? Like in a world where, I mean, I remember I, I played, you ever played Among Us? So so I, I got together with like 10 friends mm -hmm. who I was friends with when we were like 12 years old and we all live in different countries now. We're not always in touch. Then we played Among Us, just like, and sometimes we play poker and that's just so much fun, right? We're all in different countries and it's an amazing way to stay in touch with people that uh, is more interactive, but in some ways it makes it more appealing than if we were to just get on a Zoom call together and just start talking. It's the additional interactor, interaction layer uh, that's uh, getting your emotions and your uh, your senses a bit more involved, which I think is, is the big plus of video games. Um, and the reason uh, I, I'm, I'm particularly proud of having spent a lot of my uh, teenagehood playing those video games is exactly because I had that additional feeling. And still, that wasn't yet about, you know, playing online back then. Uh, talking about PS1 uh, or Super Nintendo era.
Oh, that's uh, been a very deep conversation. Um, how how can I find you yeah, on to, uh, different channels? What are you up so, to? So, I've got my own podcast, which I look forward to seeing you on, called uh, the Ben and Tony Podcast, which you can find benandtonypodcast.com, Spotify, YouTube. Uh, I write a few newsletters. Um, one is on entertainment and tech called Ben Diagrams. I have a one on Asian tech business media called East West Hurricane. I have a TikTok newsletter called Good TikTok Creative. Um, and I also have a TikTok course, uh, tiktok101.teachable.com. But I'm basically now, amongst other projects, working on building out uh, different media brands and properties in podcasting and writing. And uh, I think this is the perfect time to do it. And this is where the world is heading. And I'm really excited about it. I, I totally agree with your vision and I think it's the, it's a good direction to, to steer towards. Uh, I see not only content creators becoming brands, as you mentioned, and being a big source of, uh, uh, let's say, multiple investments themselves where they exactly. diversify into different business models. Think of Gary Vee, yeah. uh, but also also brands. That need that kind of approach. Uh, many brands, like the older the older ones we were talking about earlier, maybe they should, you know, start reinventing, trying to reinvent the wheel each time. Maybe uh, start thinking about giving up out some of uh, their uh, licenses to to let other people do new things with their brand. That's if, uh, that's uh, another interesting. If, if we thing. have like I a moment to, to talk about that, but, like. That's, I think, the biggest brand trend of the future, the next five, 10 yeah. years, right? Like you saw Mr. Beast, the big YouTuber, he launched a burger brand last month uh, across 200 US cities and they all sold out in a second. Big influencers like David Dobrik are launching like cologne brands, their own um, apps. You think about Logan Paul having his own fashion label. Whiskey. Whiskies, right. how many well, of them are launching yeah, Tesla's tequila, Tesla's you know, George whiskey, Clooney, Casamigos. Um, this, is, this is like a new model. Dana White from the UFC is launching a new whiskey. This, this is Carl a McGregor future model of whiskey. how you can launch a brand. Like, you, yeah. you get a creator and now they're they're like demanding equity. You know, like 10, 20 years ago, this the sort of play was to I don't know, pay some influencer money up front to, to promote something now influencers becoming more of a partner and maybe launching their own brand or taking equity in a brand that you're asking to be a, a part of this is the biggest thing in the world of uh brand Something. and media i think moving forward yeah. so they're bringing on the table their platform yeah, yeah. O- audience niches the ones you mentioned before yeah the brands are bringing yeah. the product. I mean, and, like uh, kind of cynically when you think about it, like what is really the difference between different types of whiskey or tequila or um, burgers? Of course, you can argue that, I don't know, you love that type of vodka more than the other type, but a large part of it is brand, you know? It's like Mr. Beast launching his Mr. Beast burger yeah, yeah. a month ago. Is it really the best burger in the world? <laughs> is it? Is it and maybe a... Uh, no, but maybe I can. Uh, it's, I'm more likely to like a person and the brand that comes with the person rather than the brand, which 
sometimes have struggled yeah. well, to and, and this is that specific point applies to themselves. everything including media so when i was interviewing on our ben and tony podcast paulina marinova pompliano she <clears throat> she used to work at fortune uh but left and started her own newsletter called the profile and she was saying people now trust people rather than they trust brands So even though she doesn't have this big brand behind her now, she doesn't work at Fortune. She has her own newsletter called uh, The Profile. When what she's banking on is the fact that people trust Paulina, you know. And if I love Paulina, if she moves to another yeah, yeah. publication, I'll follow her. I won't just follow her because of publication. It's like it's like athletes too, right? Um, people, LeBron or Ronaldo. Ronaldo switched teams several times exactly. in the last ten years. LeBron has switched teams several times in ten years. If you're a LeBron fan or a Ronaldo fan, you know Ronaldo. Exactly, or like Zlatan, right? Ronaldo can move to the yeah, MLS tomorrow, and he's going to bring 50 million fans with him, probably more, no matter who he plays for. Yeah, that's very true. Exciting. Oh, very exciting <laughs> times. Uh, I, I know they can be confusing and uh, scary for people, um, because change is always scary and things that evolve so quickly like these times are are very scary I understand that on the other side with the right mindset and the ability to embrace uh, change in the way for instance you're doing with uh, the direction you're steering towards uh, I think that's uh, definitely the the way to go thanks Fabrizio thanks Anthony yeah bye